Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here with your boy, Justice. What's up, guys? And today we are excited to talk with John San Giovanni about VR and some of our favorite Star Wars VR properties. And it's really going to be interesting, guys. You're going to get a breakdown on a lot of the main properties for VR within Star Wars and also his thoughts on the future of VR and augmented reality. Now, we will say that we talk about Tales from Galaxy's Edge, and we're currently recording on November 16th before it's released. So we're kind of hyping up with that release, even though it's probably, by the time you're listening, already been out there for a few days. So we're excited to discuss all the Star Warsy goodness with John and excited to have you guys listen to the interview ahead. <laughs> so guys, we are really excited to have John San Giovanni on our show. John, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. It's an honor to meet you both. Thanks for your time. So John is basically going to be our tech guru for this episode as Justice and myself are abysmally awful when it comes to tech um so he's had experience talking with various lecturers and is kind of brought on as an expert with the subject of different things of technology and vr you can find him with his ted talk the rise of the artist geek hybrid and other freaks of invention but john can you tell us a little bit more and give our listeners a bit of a spiel on your experience within the field of tech and geeky media Absolutely, yeah. Well, thanks again for uh, for letting me participate in this conversation. Uh, like I said, it's great to meet you both. I've listened to a ton of your content. Um, and, you know, in addition to the to my professional vectors, I'm a lifelong Star Wars, Marvel, Disney enthusiast. So this is kind of at the intersection of those things, and I'm I'm excited about the conversation. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think you know the, the TED talk was was titled "The Rise of the Artist Geek Hybrid," and and the reason why I chose that as my topic is because growing up, I always felt like such a misfit living at the intersection of, uh, of technology and design. And, um, you know, now more than ever, we realize that that's really where the magic happens is this sort of intersection between, um, between technology and design. And so it, that also kind of describes the trajectory of my career. So I, uh, I started my journey, uh, really my been the, the one common thread has been in the, in the technology venture category. So have, uh, have founded two technology companies, but also have worked for uh, a handful of, of large technology companies and have insights and experiences across that uh, continuum. And these have been in multiple uh, domains. I, um, I started my career at the Walt Disney Company, uh, which I think is how we ended up being connected through another guest you had on, uh, Christopher Lepps, who was a, a co-worker and a lifelong co-conspirator of mine in, in multiple creative endeavors. And um, said that you apparently were a ninja turtle. We we were uh, we were in fact Ninja Turtle performers together at the back back before the Ninja Turtles were um, were owned by a major media conglomerate. They were actually kind of a free agent, and they licensed the Ninja Turtles to Disney. Many people don't know this actually in the in the early '90s for a stage show, and so Chris and I were lucky enough to be superheroes, you know, full time in that show. And that was an amazing experience. And Chris, of course, has gone on to do amazing things in Hollywood. And um, he, he still, I, I count him as like a, a human nuclear reactor of, of creative energy. So I always try to collaborate with him and <laughs> keep in touch with him as much as I can. So that's how we came to be in touch. And I'm thankful for that connection. Um, but in addition, um, you know, my, my first sort of uh, journey was in entertainment. But importantly, I, I really grew up uh, learning design 
uh, inside my father. My father was a uh, an architect. He designed churches and cathedrals. So I really learned design inside the walls of his studio. And those two kind of insights together, my technical background together with my uh, kind of journey in design, it brought me into the venture space. So um, uh, the first company that I founded was really early in the app economy. Um, I was at the time a Microsoft um, I was in Microsoft Research doing some early work on uh, direct manipulation screen navigation and collaborating with um, with leading researchers to figure out next generation sort of mobile device interaction methods. Uh, this was, of course, pre-iPhone, pre-Android. But interestingly enough, um, we ultimately decided the best match was to package up my patent portfolio and spin it out into an independent entity uh, called Zumobi. And that company ended up being an early leader in the app economy had. 15 apps in the top 10 of their respective categories, you know, tens of millions of users, really, really an exciting ride and did some really fun collaborations with, um, including with Marvel and others. And then, um, and then I really most recently, my, mo my, uh, my most recent adventure is I spent about five years digging in on the augmented and virtual reality category with a company called Visual Vocal, which was really the endeavor was to be kind of the Google Docs of AR and VR, a, a general purpose framework for speeding communication, both synchronous and asynchronous communication on, on complex construction projects. Um, so anyways, lots of experience across that spectrum. And along the way, you know, worked at worked at Microsoft and Disney and uh, currently collaborating with Logitech, you know, just sort of a, a, a wide array of different experiences at this intersection of design and technology. And we're really excited to kind of bring in our shared love of Star Wars and Marvel to your expertise of VR. And that's kind of what we're going to explore today. But before we dive into that, we have to know our usual question for guests. What is your favorite Star Wars movie? So uh, I, ha I have a algorithmic answer to this question. Of which course is... you do. As a techie guy, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> which is um, 456. Mando seven eight nine three two one, and I haven't quite decided where where Solo and Rogue One fit in that, uh, but um, but that's sort of how I frame it. So you know, uh, A New Hope, Episode Four, you know, started all sort of this um, locomotive engine that has pulled this incredible, <laughs> you know, long train of innovation over mm -hmm. decades. So uh, I still come back to A New Hope. Obviously, Empire is incredible. Um, in my household, we can only watch the despecialized versions. You know, sort of. Hashtag Han shot first, and um, and then we uh, and then um, you know the, I, th I think the reboots were artfully executed. Um, though you know even more than my love for the reboots is I'm just um, I'm loving the Mandalorian. I think it's just really kind of calls back to those original trilogy um, aesthetically and also thematically. And you, you know the thing that I love is you you can definitely feel the love from the filmmakers being expressed in those episodes, and that's. Um, awesome yeah we, we just recorded an episode on um the chapter uh, i guess 11 or 10 and 11 and we could not stop talking about chapter 11 and it was just how awesome it was so yeah we we have so the same good. sentiment. so good yeah totally agree yeah and i do find it interesting we haven't had a p person yet include mando under their list so i think that does add in a little extra kind of issue in my brain with trying yeah. to like put that among the skywalker saga because i just adore mando but that's like i don't know yeah I'm, I'm, big I'm, biblical I'm appreciating canon. them breaking the rules on that one <laughs> <laughs> i do i do like that 
Now, before we dive into our main topic of the various Star Wars VR experiences, we'd like to hear a little bit about your collaboration you had with Marvel and more of the Iron Man intellectual property. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. I'm, <laughs> I actually, the, the Iron Man character, I got bit by the bug on, so I was a comic book, you know, dude back in college, read a ton of comic books, um, and always, always really admired marvel as a brand on multiple dimensions um you know some of which are obvious just you know the incredible uh artwork the incredible adventure but also i, I love their orientation toward 10 you know their superheroes tend to be for the most part regular people that discover you know their their potential and i, I love that as a theme and i also love their creative flexibility in terms of their openness to do mashups and to do what ifs and you know they just they always captured my imagination as um, as a creative, even back in the 90s. And in fact, Iron Man was a character that I discovered in the arc uh, during the 90s, long before sort of the MCU. I was super into Iron Man. I actually have a formidable collection of Iron Man comics from that vintage. But um, then when the movie was uh, when the movie was introduced and called out, I was, of course, energized. I thought, you know, Robert Downey Jr. was an incredible fit for Tony Stark for a variety of reasons. I thought he was like right on tone. He kind of had been out of the popular zeitgeist for a while. So it was a wonderful kind of reintroduction of him. But also, you know, because of um, the parallels between kind of Tony Stark's life challenges and his, I, th I just thought it was a great fit. And little did I know that his performance there would, you know, amplify and, and ignite this incredible MCU. Um, so uh, Iron Man... The Iron Man 2 time frame, really, you know, Iron Man had come out, they sort of teed up the MCU, and then really I feel like Iron Man 2 is really when the MCU was starting to come together. The characters were being introduced, there was cross-referencing, there was shared talent, it was awesome. And so around that time frame, that was really when there was a significant crescendo of app publication. You know, the App Store had been live for two or three years, um, there was a lot of activity, there was a lot of revenue in that category, so uh, me and my... Um, me and my colleagues, the CEO of Zumobi at the time, uh, Ken Wilner, we decided that it would be interesting to see what content opportunities they were, there were in the Marvel Universe. And we actually reached out to, a, at the time, pre-Disney Marvel. <laughs> so it was really a cool experience. You know, went to New York into the old original Marvel building, you know, um, which was unceremonious, but, but incredibly magical. And, um, and really proposed this idea for, uh, for an Iron Man content experience, which was really centered on all the dimensions of the character across multiple um, media, but but was also synchronized on time with the release of Iron Man 2, the movie. And um, and that was a super fun collaboration. I was massively impressed with the team. Um, we, we had no shortage of content streams that we could incorporate into the app. The users loved it. Um, the, the interface was kind of deeply inspired by Jarvis, so it had a lot of kind of radial moving parts and um, at HUD style interface and so um and then of course we got to attend the uh, me and my co-founder uh ben betterson got to attend the east coast premiere uh at, at at uh in new york city which was which is a cool experience so that was that was a wonderful ride did you pitch that to ike peterman or is that how you say his name uh i didn't no i i forgot the individual names of the folks that i was engaged with but i was really um i was coordinating with the digital side um which again pre-disney there was probably five people running all of digital for Marvel. It was impressive. You know, now there's probably 5,000, but, um, but it was, uh, it was, it was before that acquisition and, and the team, they were all driven by passion, but also supremely competent, uh, technically. 
Yeah, and I love how you're able to kind of be there in the earlier days of Marvel and kind of see that within the, the realm of your sort of media with the apps and all of that. But I think, Justice, are you ready to dive into a little bit of Star Wars VR? Oh, yeah, we did a whole lot of research, so I'm super excited to talk about this. Because uh, there is, I'm slightly surprised at how much actual Star Wars VR content there is. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's jump into this. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I was excited to, to jump on this podcast, because it's interesting, you know, the Star Wars universe kind of lives, uh, lives in this place that it is so conducive to virtual content, right? It's, um, and, and just, you know, just to pause for a moment and talk about sort of the state of, of AR and VR for a moment. First of all, let me pause and ask you, gents, if you, um, uh, do you guys have VR rigs at home or, you know, what's your sort of experience with VR? I've never, I've had only one experience with VR. Um, it was at a Comic-Con over in Chicago, and they had a Spider-Man VR, which was really cool. It was super fun. We looked like we were awkwardly air-humping during the whole time. It was hilarious. But that's the only time I've really had a chance to do VR. Otherwise, all of these are, I've heard of them, but never had a chance to experience it. What about you, Justice? Uh, same thing. I, I haven't had... Uh, any other experiences other than doing that Spider-Man Homecoming game, which was a lot of fun, but uh, I am thinking about asking my parents for an Oculus for Christmas, but haven't decided yet. Maybe this conversation will uh, further that uh, that idea. A, a Quest 2, I assume. Uh, yes. the, new, the new one, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll just sort of, maybe for the audience that might or might not you know, be familiar with the current state of VR, you know, it's interesting. On the arc of human communication media, I, I actually think that um, VR is our first little baby step into this domain of what I call spatial computing. I, I just want to be clear that I actually don't think that VR necessarily is the revolution in itself. I think there's been a lot of false starts there. There's been a lot of investments. Um, but it is a, I think it does kind of preview what we're going to see in the decades to come. And, and I've always said that I feel like um, really, virtual reality is the first step on the way to augmented reality when eventually we can just, you know, display holographic images or spatial images alongside other things in the real world. And obviously, you know, Microsoft with HoloLens and Magic Leap and others have been doing experimentation around AR, but it's still, you know, they're still expensive and largely enterprise focused. You know, I think, let's say uh, one or two decades from now, we will see uh, holographic images just part of our lifestyle. And even some of the devices that we know and love now, like phones and tablets, those actually might be cannibalized by augmented reality technologies. You know, when, if you factor this technology forward by 15 or 20 years, when an AR headset looks like the, you know, the glasses that I wear every day, you know, and I'm able to, you know, it's able to track my hand, I can just extend my palm and all of a sudden, like a, a, a perfect phone of zero ounces and incredible resolution is hovering on my phone. I can interact with it as I normally would, or, you know, and of course that, metaphor is is plagued by all the intellectual baggage that we all have around having spent 50 years of computing in two dimensions, right? Um, humans are evolved to compute and, and, and communicate in three dimensions. So very quickly, these slab-oriented interfaces will melt away, and we will just be in this incredibly immersive world. Um, one soundbite I like to say is like sometimes when I'm talking to kids about the history of telephones you know i'll like try to explain to them that once upon a time we'd make a make a call on a device that was tethered to the wall with a cable you know and and they just can't even grok that right they just can't even get their mind around that idea you know could you just unplug it once it's charged it's like oh actually that's the signal they're like no the signal just goes into the air you know they just can't understand that concept well i i would submit to you that 
you know, if you fast forward 20 years, 30 years, it will be way harder for those kids to explain to their kids that that once upon a time, all of our digital information was present to, presented to us through these silly rectangular slabs of glass and silicon. You know, those will just melt away and be replaced by AR technology. Now, that's not where we are today. However, there is an impressive array of early VR gear that is actually getting pretty close to a level of accessibility and usability that is exciting. So the one most notable right now is the, is the Oculus Quest 2 recently released. And the reason why that device is incredible is because it's not an accessory. It is a completely self-contained rig. The computing is built into the headset. Sometimes I'll use the, the phrase HMD, head mounted display. That's the, that's the acronym for the thing you wear on your head. And also this thing, you know, it has built in computing. It tracks the room at the same frame rate as the game. So that's actually how they determine how you're moving around a space. It can even track your hands if the game supports that. It's, it comes with two very high quality controllers with really good haptic feedback. And for 300 bucks and up, you know, you can buy this rig that doesn't require a PC, doesn't require a gaming console. So I, the, the reason why I call that out, because, you know, again, some, some of your audience might know that or own one, but some might not. I just want to kind of get everyone up to speed. However, that's really the, the most recent step on a lot, on five to, five to seven years of experimentation since the, since the humble Oculus Kickstarter and their acquisition by, by Facebook, and then, of course, what HTC did in the domain and, and, and Microsoft and others. So it's a good time to have this conversation because Star Wars has actually been one of the IP categories that has thrived in this domain. And I have a theory about why that is. And my theory is that, you know, this current state of VR, we can debate whether it's not whether or not it's great for like true gaming, like uppercase G gaming, you know, competitive gaming. But I think I would submit that we, you know, there's clear evidence that a headset is a is a accessible alternative to a theme park ride, right? Where you get this thing, it's three hundred bucks, you put it on your Wi-Fi, you put it on your noggin, and all of a sudden you can have this amazing array of experiences. That are that more simulate a a Disney dark ride than a um, than an actual true competitive video game, and for that reason, I actually think that Star Wars is a great um, is a great category of content. So that's my that's my opening. Any, any questions or thoughts about that before we dive into the individual experiences? Well, I, I kind of like your. I don't know if this is exactly what you're getting at, but I feel as I look into these different types of VR, it's all there. I, what I see is potential, but not kind of the reality of what I'd want yet. Of It's kind of like a big old nerdy tease seeing each of these experiences because they're fantastic, but they are just like a tiny little taste of what the potential is. And I think Star Wars is a perfect universe for this because arguably a lot of fans love the universe of Star Wars sometimes even more than the content of just living in that kind of George Lucas made universe and VR really highlights that incredibly well. But also, even if you think about the, the signals, the streams that you're presented to in VR, it's actually super conducive to this universe, right? Like, you know, you, one could imagine the lightsabers were made to be expressed in VR, you know, with like this, this magical wand that, you know, extends from your hand or, 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 you know, similarly, you think about there's such a strong musical 
foundation of the Star Wars universe. There are such specific visual themes that you could drop into VR and instantly know you're in a Star Wars world. So the first, you know, the first one that I um, experienced and that many experienced, I think it was, I, I, I think it was the first licensed kind of, you know, AAA VR title, which many of these, by the way, were driven by ILM XLab. And um, that, that team has been thought leaders from day zero on AR VR. Um, but this was uh, Trials on Tatooine, which was released on Steam. And it was, it was truly, a, you know, it was not a game. It was really a, a, an interactive ride, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better expression. But it was so nicely done in the sense that uh, they pulled in a bunch of the Star Wars tropes uh, you know, into into the experience in a very unified way. So one of the things that's powerful about virtual reality is this notion of of scale, right? Like the the fact that these things are at a scale that are very hard to reproduce, right? On a computer screen. Um, in fact, Disney spent multiple billions of dollars trying to recreate the scale at you know a Galaxy's Edge. I think with success, right? But it's like in your home. It's there's something amazing when you're standing in the middle of the desert, as you are in, in you know, in, on Tatooine and in, in Trials of Tatooine, and then all of a sudden, like the Falcon just like comes down and lands right next to you. It's like what? And then you're you know kind of chatting with um, you're chatting with Han Solo, and he's walking you through how to repair the Falcon by doing you know sort of simple controller commands, and um, and then of course R two D two comes out, and he's like you're looking down at him, perfect human scale, and then of course. The Empire shows up and you see TIE fighters and stormtroopers and you have a lightsaber and, you know, it's, it's just a very, it, it pulls all the things together in a very crisp, focused, brief experience. And um, that was a great teaser. I think that was like the appetizer of like, wow, we can really pull on this thread and, and go to crazy town. I love your um, kind of parallel of calling it more of a ride than like that gaming experience. Because I was looking at this and I was thinking from the lens of someone who plays like those large open world games like Red Dead Redemption, Skyrim, thinking you have hundreds of hours of content in those games. What would attract me to something that lasts roughly less than 10 minutes? But if you see it as a ride, as that kind of short, immersive experience, it definitely has a little bit more value to me. In fact, of the experiences, so that's an insightful comment. Of all the com of all the experiences that we've inventoried that are licensed, honestly, only one of them I think we could credibly call like a competitive, you know, game. Uh, and that's fairly recent. That's Star Wars Squadrons, which has a VR mode, and you can actually play competitively in that mode. But like, um, but most of these, I'd say, are are really more like a like a theme park ride, and I think it's all about setting that expectation. You know, I'll also say there's a great soundbite that I've heard multiple times, which is the coolest. You know, one of the coolest things to do with VR is to show other people VR for the first time. Like that's <laughs> that's honestly, it's like one of the reasons why you buy an HMD because you want to introduce someone else to this thing. And and VR is one of those things that like even if you're watching someone do it on a two dimensional screen. Um, and you're seeing their gaze move around, just even having watched them do a specific experience, when you actually put on the HMD yourself and you have that spatial experience and the audio experience and you have six degrees of mood movement, you know, it's a different thing. It's just a different thing, right? And um, and so, you know, for that reason, like one of the one of my favorite things to do with VR is to is to drop people, you know, especially if I find out they're a Star Wars geek, I'm like, you know, 
give me 10 minutes and check this out. And so it's really, really fun. Now that's harder during COVID because <laughs> we don't see humans IRL, but, but it's a wonderful, but it's a wonderful, you know, uh, kind of way to think about these experiences. So that's a good segue to the next one, which is, and I have, I have a funny and embarrassing anecdote on this one, which is um, Battlefront uh, had, they built into almost, almost as a, like a, a promotional afterthought for rogue one they did a vr mission in that game so you can't play the like fps game in vr but they have one discrete experience that if you happen to have a compatible headset and you have the game on your pc you know or or on uh P playstation psvr you can actually experience this in vr and it was an x-wing experience and it was again just awesome i mean so artfully executed i will say that on the spectrum of VR comfort, it definitely drifted a little bit. <laughs> it's a little bit less comfortable than Trials of Tatooine. You know, um, one of the fundamental rules of making VR, and, and I learned this on my own investments and innovations in the space, is that the worst thing you can do in VR is to have the you're you be moving but not moving is the way it's described so it really throws off your vestibular system if you're if your visual system sees you moving but your but your inner ear says wait a minute i'm not moving what is up right and it, in fact similarly you can think of it as kind of the opposite effect of car sickness so the way you get car sick is when you're looking down at a book and your visual center doesn't see any any kind of frame of reference that you're moving yet your inner ear is like i think we're moving that makes you uncomfortable right so the best way to alleviate car sickness is look out the window well it's the opposite effect in vr right so and, and a great way to get sick in vr is have you flying a spaceship around um <laughs> when you're actually sitting <laughs> there right and um the way that they mitigate this on all the systems is they really they build these beautifully detailed cockpits which are super fun to look at. Um, you're inside an actual X-Wing cockpit. It's rad. But the reason why they're doing that is so that they're really limiting your, your effective field of view to just the windows so that it doesn't make you uncomfortable. That's one kind of hack, human hack, they can use to, to make you more comfortable. Um, however, this effect is exaggerated with younger users. So my embarrassing story is that, you know, I had a, I had a PSVR. I got this game. I flew around the X-Wing and I'm like, OMG, this is incredible. You know, I, at the time, I my son, I forgot how old he was, but he was probably, he was pretty young. He was like maybe six or seven. And um, and I was like thinking to myself, why would humankind invent virtual reality technology if not to make a seven-year-old fly an X-Wing fighter? Like, that seems <laughs> like the most, <laughs> the most noble thing we can do. So notwithstanding all the multiple warnings that, you know, they gave you, you know, that you shouldn't put a seven-year-old in VR. I, I chose to do it. And um, he felt pretty woozy for a few hours, but. Oh, I'm <laughs> but, sure. But, but, the, but the experience was, was amazing. And, and, um, and it's still one of my favorite, all-time favorite VR experiences. Now, well, you mentioned we were doing... how it can lead to kind of that dizziness. So how do you feel about VR as kind of that we always compare it to the gaming with the long-term sessions. Do you think that VR is still suited to that? Or is it better suited for short sessions, purely just off of your vestibular input? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, many, many PhD research papers have been written on this topic. There's actually, in fact, many of the reasons why I'm skeptical about the long-term impact of VR is because of these 
the fundamental kind of incompatibilities with the human visual system, um, of which this vestibular uh, stress is just one. I mean, another big problem, that, that, in, in fact, I, I'm pretty resistant to simulator sickness, so VR very seldom bothers me. However, one thing that does uh, bother me is the fixed focal length. You know, the fact that you're looking at a fixed focal length, even though you're, you know, you're interacting with things, you know, kind of quote, in reality, you know, virtual reality, that that generates a type of fatigue that's difficult to describe. And so for that reason, you know, I've done I've done hours long virtual sessions, really more in the on the creativity realm where I'm modeling, uh, where I'm modeling a space, you know, modeling a, a spaceship, for example, as a creative act um, in, in a sculptural sketching uh, system like tilt brush or blocks. And those systems, I do feel queasy, not because of vestibular pain, but because of the fixed focal length issue so augmented reality alleviates a lot of that because yeah. most of your most of your wet wear is actually looking out you know and your actual visual system is looking out in the real world and there's still is a there's still technology to invent to make sure that the the digital content is at the right focal plane but generally speaking um those uh those problems will go away as we mature these technologies i know for when we were doing the uh spider-man one talking about the vestibular issue i definitely like when i i jumped off a really high point in in the game and i knew i wasn't moving but like i very visually like, i could see i was moving and i felt super weird um when we were all done i was like my legs were like were you know i, I like i felt like i had sat down I, I don't know even how to explain it but like i just yeah. felt like i felt weird and i totally totally understand that <laughs> you know what's also interesting actually um is there are some VR titles like The Climb, which is a rock climbing experience, very high production value. Um, and some people have reported to have accidentally um, eliminated their fear of heights by playing that game. No. So the opposite. Yeah, it's amazing. So some people, they, they play that game, and for whatever reason, it kind of shortcuts a neural path, and you some people don't feel uncomfortable. Even though, even though they're terrified to be at the edge of the Grand Canyon kind of in real life, when they're in VR and they're hanging off the side of a wall, it doesn't bother them. But the, but the trippy thing is that if you do that enough, then next time you're at the edge of the Grand Canyon, strangely, you're no longer scared because you've kind of rewired a different neural path. I don't think anybody, I don't, actually, I don't think science knows why that works, but, but multiple people have reported kind of accidentally curing themselves of acrophobia, which I find fascinating. I need to do that because I have a fear of heights. There you go. There, there's your justification. I mean, you can justify 300 bucks on that alone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I just need to get over my fear of stormtroopers. You know, it's debilitating for my life. So I need this VR. <laughs> you shouldn't be scared of, of stormtroopers. They can never shoot anything with a blaster. So I think you're perfectly, <laughs> I think you're perfectly safe. Man. Many, many movies have proven that these guys have terrible aim, so I think you're perfectly safe. Same thing with the last episode of Mandalorian. But speaking on this experience, I like how... So it is still a shorter kind of mission, but it's longer length than the Trials on Tatooine one. So you get at least 20 minutes worth of, co of content, which is actually, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems like a fairly large amount for VR. It is a long time for being in a moving craft, I'll say. Um, I think they probably pushed the envelope on that a little bit. And again, it's very artfully executed. The, you know, everything, the voice acting and the musical design and the environmental design is exceptional. You know, a lot of these titles in the early days, before there was a huge user base in VR, they were essentially promotional investments that were kind of grafted on the side 
of a $100 million AAA title, right? So that they could leverage the assets, the digital assets and the, and the game engine of an existing kind of, you know, 2D or whatever, screen-based FPS. And so that was, that was an early experiment. And again, it was, it was a good one. Um, you know, it's, I, I think that um, the next one to talk about really is at the other end of the spectrum, which is uh, Shadows of the Empire and The Void. So uh, some of some of your audience might know the void because this is a very savvy audience in the sort of uh, you know themed entertainment industry. But the void is actually a venture that, um, in fact, now Disney has a significant investment in the void. But they were you know originally kind of an independent bunch of stagecraft you know magicians and technologists and storytellers that formed a relatively small company to push the envelope of location based VR. And so they take contemporary VR systems, but then they like back up a dump truck of cool t methods from older, uh, from from both old and new science. So they employ a lot of the theme park stagecraft, like introducing changes in temperature and wind, and even having pressure plates that drop an inch just to give you a sense of you know initiating movement and. And, but then they also use cutting edge state of the art contemporary methods, like a method, one of my favorites is a method called reality distortion, where you can actually put someone in a relatively small room. And by using this gag where you basically only move the room, um, you know, five degrees when they move their head four degrees, you can actually have them thinking they're walking in a straight line for a mile when they're actually just walking around in circles. It's a really crazy. That's so method. cool. It's rad, yeah. Um, Anyways, I might have gotten that wrong in terms of what you see and what you do. But but anyways, the point is that it's a it's a really cool scientific method. They employ that. They align physical items in the real world with the digital world. So even though you can't see anything, you know, you're wearing an actual VR headset with full opacity, you're seeing a fully virtual world. They have motion tracked you in your hands and they've motion tracked the world perfectly. So you can walk up, for example, to like a stormtrooper blaster and reach out with your actual hand and grab, and you see a digital gun, you reach out, there's a there's a physical blaster in, in that location and you take it off the rack and use it. You know, So it's like all these really killer gags. You walk by lava, you feel the heat emanating from the lava. And you know, the void is very expensive. It's like, I don't know, I think it's like a, I wanna say it's like a four person experience for 10 minutes and it's like $200 for 10 minutes for the four of you or something. It's like, it's pretty expensive, but, but it's like so well done and it really does they've done a better job than anyone i've seen in terms of kind of crossing that reality barrier by by flexing every conceivable trick from the 1950s disneyland all the way through to to modern you know science methods in in immersive computing and it's the void is awesome and the fact that they actually made a star wars experience shadows secrets of the empire uh, they have my respect yeah, my, my parents were able to experience this and they were talking about how there's a part where there's a bridge and how I don't know if it like falls or like they just like have to cross it. But they my mom said that how she was like legitimately scared to fall off, even though like in her head, she kept on telling herself, you know, it's not real. It's not real. You're just in a room. But like they, she was saying that she did. They did such a good job of making you feel like you were actually in that environment. No, it's so good. good. It's so good. And think about if you're like one of the operators at The Void you're watching this group of four people basically walking through an empty room on a concrete slab. And, but in their world in, in VR, they think they're walking along this tiny little, you know, kind of, uh, you know, metal walkway over lava. 
because and there's heaters, you know, space heaters that are kind of making them feel the lava. They're uh, you know, and so they're all very delicate. But you're just watching them walk across the middle of a huge room. It has <laughs> to be hilarious. It's really funny, but but it, it's it works. It totally works, you know. And sometimes they'll even put you on a pressure plate, and you'll be thinking like you're standing in an elevator, even though you're just like you're standing. You're all crowded on this pressure plate, and the pressure plate just pops an inch. And that's when the elevator starts moving in the virtual world. So it gives you this experience that, you know, that sort of initiates the elevator movement. I mean, all these gags are so good. And the fact they wrapped it up in a Star Wars um, universe presentation, just absolutely great. I, I did it with my brother, Steve, in, um, in uh, Florida, uh, and we loved it. Now, one question I have with this one, do you feel that the VR market is better geared towards this location-based kind of experience or more of the pseudo-console experience? It's a really good question. Um, you know, is, like, you know, another, another way to put it is, like, holiday 2020, if given, you know, 400 bucks, do you buy, <laughs> you know, do you buy an Xbox or do you buy an Oculus? And um, I think it's, my answer is, it. I don't think it's quite as good for long-term, you know, sort of intensive gaming as an old school, quote, old school console, right? Um, and there are there are amazing games in VR. You know, Population One is all the rage this five minutes. That's another Seattle studio that's made a, um, a battle royale experience in VR. I've played it. It's awesome. They executed flawlessly. Um, but I still, at the end of the day probably played more battle royale on, you know, conventional systems. So, um, so I think that, you know, the answer is that if, you know, it absolutely now that, now that it's at this incredible price point, it's definitely a good jumping on point to VR. But the expectation I would set is that you'll probably do most of your gaming on whatever you're doing gaming on now, but you'll have this whole new venue for immersive experiences, um, that you haven't had on consoles. So I, I think they're, I actually think they live in two different headspaces, which, you know, is not necessarily good news because it means you need to buy one of each. <laughs> uh, I think we'd gladly suffer through that. Our spouses would be fine with it, right, Justice? <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, I think I think Morgan would really enjoy playing, doing some VR stuff. But this next game, Vader Immortal, I think that's like the reason I would get um, the quest too, is just to play this game. Because I've watched so much youtube videos on it and it just looks like it looks like this is personally my favorite experience that we're talking about all, all things being equal looking at this entire list this is by far my favorite um and in fact it's it's actually one of my favorite intro to vr experiences you know if somebody is like oh i've always wanted to experience vr what should i do and i'm like just check this out and it's because first of all they did such well first of all they, the same team learned from everything they did in Trials on Tatooine. And there was also a, kind of a droid workshop and other things. They learned all of their tricks and they brought them all together into this um, Vader Immortal experience. And the nice thing they did is that there are three chapters, one, two, and three. They're each 10 bucks, so very accessible. I think priced appropriately for like a, a themed experience as opposed to a game. And um, incredible dynamic range of, of experiences. There's some like... You have to hack into an Imperial door using VR. There's obviously tons of lightsaber stuff. There's blaster stuff. There's, you know, it's just like, it's just so good. And the, the, the biodiversity of environments that you get to experience are also great. You're in, you're in an Imperial, you know, um, base 
with all everything you'd expect to find there. You're in, um, you know, you're behind the scenes, you know, working your way through shafts and climbing up pipes, but then you're also underground in a Jedi temple, you know, forgotten Jedi temple with wooden, you know, with beautiful kind of wood and rock. I mean, so, so, so good. And the episode one and three are amazing. Episode two was good. Also had one too many kind of jump scares for me, but generally very, very good. And these experiences, I would say, if you're a huge Star Wars nerd and you're you're missing, you know, sort of not being able to go to the theme parks because of COVID, this is a good kind of way to <laughs> scratch that edge. It's <laughs> just, you know, work your way through episodes one, two, and three of Vader Immortal. I, I doubt you'll play them a zillion times. You know, you probably play, play them two or three times, but you will, I promise you, you will introduce everyone in your family to it. It, Vader, the thing, big thing with this is Vader looks absolutely terrifying. I mean, just watching the trailer, seeing the person come up to Vader in that dark room, I cannot imagine how terrified I'd be doing that in VR. Yeah, it's great. It's great. They're really, they're really good. And I, and I really applaud Oculus Studios also for collaborating with ILMX Lab because it's, it's a wonderful piece of original content to convince people to jump into this medium, right? Like it's, it's kind of. Again, it's kind of relevant to this podcast. It's it's kind of the perfect IP for the perfect device at the perfect price point at the perfect time. You know, it's just like it's so I can't say enough good things about Vader Immortal. So good. In fact, I think uh, I think that episodes one, two and three are actually bundled in if you buy a quest or a quest two or, uh, or you know, quest quest two is only the, the only one sold right now. So I think if you if you if you buy that, I think you get those for free, if I'm not mistaken. One of the things I was really bummed about is that um, when I went to Star Wars Celebration, they had a booth where you can uh, go in and experience Vader and Mortal, but the whole weekend, it was just the lines were outrageously long, and so that I like wasn't able to experience it, but that's one thing I wish if I could go back, I would totally just check that out just to try it. Dude, it's not too late. You could have it in your home. <laughs> <laughs> which I think before we get into the last one here, which is more of a true kind of video game, I think owning these games that are a little bit shorter, kind of, it's like you're owning basically a theme park ride in your home. So it's meant to be kind of interactive in that you're sharing this home-based theme park ride with all of your friends and family. And I think that's the real draw for, for me with these kind of properties. Totally. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. In fact, the only thing it's missing... Well, not the only thing, obviously, going to a theme park is a wonderful family experience. But but I think one key parameter that's missing in these current expressions is they are still pretty solitary experiences. Um, you know, even if you're sharing it with somebody who's looking on a spectator screen like a TV, they can see what you're seeing, but they're not really experiencing it with you. I look forward to some future version of it, particularly as the price point of these HMDs comes down. You know, I'd love to work my way through one of these experiences collaboratively with two or three or four other people, um, very much like what the void enables. Um, that I think is that would actually unlock a whole new set of these themed experiences. But I think you hit you hit it right on the head. I mean, I think that thinking about these VR experiences, especially the Star Wars experiences, as little a theme park, you know, turn your convert your garage into a theme park is sort of the way I think about it, and. Um, my, my daughter is super into um, marine biology in the ocean, so like she can get face to face with a blue whale, you know. And like, there's so many different incredible experiences of VR enables. Now let's dive into the last one here, which is fairly recent: Star Wars Squadrons, their VR campaign. Now this one is interesting because it 
It basically includes the entire game with both single player and a multiplayer element that's cross-platform. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know of any other VR experiences that go into the multiplayer cross-platform. There have been fan-made, uh, lots of fan-made stuff, um, and there's been a lot of experimentation um, in this domain. And like I, I mentioned, like Population One and other, you know, other VR titles allow you to play, you know, quote the full interactive game, and I think they do that well. But in in the domain of, I think this was a big surprise to everyone that um, squad. First of all, that there was this like. Star Wars space sim <laughs> that was quietly being, you know, developed in at EA. But then the fact that they actually grafted VR on not as a experience, but throughout the entire, um, uh, you know, not as a self-contained experience like the like the PSVR one, but actually integrated throughout the entire gameplay, including multiplayer. That that is impressive, and and that is non-trivial to do. That's like an order of magnitude harder than just having a dedicated you know, VR experience, it complicates the test process, the, the quality assurance process severely when you're saying like anyone can be in VR at any point through our entire campaign. Like that's super ambitious. So hats off to the EA team for their execution there. Um, so well, I, want, I want to ask if either of you played Star Wars Squadrons just, you know, on a screen yet? Not yet, because we both are just god awful at any kind of flying game. That's been always our biggest beef with this game. I, yeah, I will say that it's you know, it's a legit, I, I might not, you know, whatever, the purists might not call it a, a full simulator, but it's definitely several orders of magnitude harder than like the, the X-Wing experience that was, um, that we talked about earlier, you know, as part of ba Battlefront. Um, you know, there's, you have to think about whether you're using, you know, whether your shields are front or back or balanced, you have to think about whether you're balanced between performance or weapons or shields. I mean, it's like, it's got multiple dimensions and you're constantly tuning these. And even the missions themselves are fairly complex in the campaign. Um, there's, you know, you're always doing things at a squad level. There's there's a targeting parameter. So there, there are a lot of moving parts. And I would say of all of these, it definitely has the most complexity and depth in all the best and worst of ways. You know, I think that it's like, for that reason, it's probably a much deeper well. And I'm sure there's people who are listening to this right now who've actually worked their way through the entire campaign and have played a lot of multiplayer um, campaigns um, just using VR. And that's cool, right? Because not not many have done that. Um, the Eve, Valkyrie, and other games have been space combat um, games in VR, but this is the first one in, you know, really in the Star Wars universe that takes it that deep. Um, I will say that, you know, once again, you're moving but not moving. So if you're conducive to simulator sickness, you might want to give this one a pass or at least play it on a screen instead of VR. Because, um, again, I'm like super resistant. But when I was flying in VR very close to a Star Destroyer, which, of course, was rad. You know, I'm in my X-Wing, like buzzing a Star Destroyer and like looking around and I see R2 behind me. And I see, you know, it's just like it was just such a killer experience. But I did feel it like it definitely crosses that line a little bit. So I would just say be, be cautious. Um, but it is probably the only one in this lineup that I think is truly like a competitive multiplayer game. Um, I, the, one one remark about the controls is um, everything I've read, and you know, there's a bunch of other YouTubers that have spoken about this, like um, like Tested and uh, Projections and others. That um, this game really, you really need to have a Hotas controller, which is hands-on stick and throttle, like an actual simulator stick and throttle, because 
you can't see your keyboard. <laughs> you know, you're in VR, so you can't see your keyboard. So it's very hard to control, and it's not really great for a twin stick kind of gaming controller. So I would say that, you know, if you're buying VR because you want to play Squadrons, first of all, you know, make sure you're okay with a little bit of simulator sickness. But the second thing is you might want to budget for a, for a hands-on stick and throttle controller so that you get the full experience. And those are usually a few hundred bucks. Did you beat the game? I haven't yet. No, I haven't. Um, I'm about halfway, I think. So the last one, which is a good way to close it out is, um, coming out this week. <laughs> so this is a good, this is one of the reasons why I thought this would be good timing to have this conversation Yeah, is a uh, tale, tales from the galaxy's edge. And, um, this is pretty rad. So that ILMX team, of course, you know, inside the walls of Lucas and Disney, um, they're doing basically a fourth chapter of Vader immortal with the same characters, I think. Um, and, um, it's on quest two. So very accessible, you know, runs on their greatest and most accessible hardware platform. Um, and, uh, oh, actually one, sorry, one note I forgot to mention something very cool about the quest Two for your listeners that already have like a gaming rig. Let's say you're already playing, um, you know, squadrons on your high end gaming PC and you're like, oh gosh, yet another quote platform. I have to go and buy Oculus. I have to rebuy the game. A beautiful thing that Oculus did is that if you take a USB-C connector and plug it from, you know, your noggin, <laughs> you know, but not, not matrix style, but from the controller directly into your <laughs> it basically morphs the headset into a an Oculus Rift. So you can actually play the full suite of Steam and Oculus desktop games that are way too f- powerful to run on the self-contained headset. It basically just hijacks the visual and tracking systems of the headset. And that is so rad because it means that you basically get two for the price of one. You get a you get effectively a, an Oculus Rift and a Quest. The Quest works great when you're just throwing your bag. You don't even need a PC. But when you have the benefit of your PC, you can play this whole array of games that are too fast to run on, um, that require too much horsepower to run on a um, on a headset. So, so they do it through like a pseudo screen share then? Kind of sharing it with the Quest um, visual input? It's... It is a very impressive thing they're doing there. So, um, so uh, there, there's a lot of dimensions. It's actually both. Um, it's basically rendering, you know, stereoscopic two screens in addition to the standard screen that's being rendered on the computer. But then, in addition, it also um, is handling all of the inside-out optical tracking, which is how it knows where you are in the room and how it knows what to render. So that round trip. You know, I imagine they're flexing a lot of the bandwidth of a USB-C cable in order to pull that off. And that's also why they don't allow you to do it wirelessly. There are hacks to pull it off. Um, but um, I understand you probably should have an air sickness bag on hand if you try those wireless hacks. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, the, the, uh, I use it equal parts tethered as untethered. It's a really beautiful feature of that product. Um, Anyways, but Tales from Galaxy's Edge. So this is actually, this is one that runs self-contained. You don't need a PC. Um, it's it's basically the next chapter of Vader Immortal. But what they did that was so clever, and, you know, they started this pre, pre-COVID, so it's very prescient for them to, you know, do this. It turned out well that they worked with the Imagineering team that built Galaxy's Edge, and they created an idealized, fictionalized version of the actual human-scale theme park locations and have expressed those now in VR, of course, with, you know, animated alien characters and, you know, et cetera. So it's, 
super cool what they did there. So basically the next, the next setting for the next Vader Immortal, you know, immersive experience is really truly galaxies that, you know, whatever black spire outpost the location of galaxy's edge where you can go there and you can interact, um, you know, just like you, uh, just like you would at the theme park, but actually it's not the theme park. It's a whole new set of experiences and missions and characters, really clever twist and a, and a wonderful, um, gift for those of us that are frustrated that we can't go to Disney galaxy's edge right now. <laughs> you know, it's a way yeah. to be able to, uh, a way to be able to bring it into your home. That is incredible, especially because obviously with the times, you can't always go to Galaxy's Edge. And I didn't know that. They basically emulated the Disney Park then for this experience? Yeah, again, it's sort of a fictionalized version of it. So, like, you you know, you can't you can't walk your way back out to the Disney MGM Studios. You know, you're really no. just in Black Square Outpost. But it's, but it's, and, and it's, I'm sure it's different in significant ways. But, um, but the fact they use that as the foundation, you can go into the cantina, you can place base darts. I mean, these are all things they've announced. I'm sure there's a bunch of other stuff they haven't announced that's super fun. Now, all these experiences sound incredible for VR, but overall, what do you think would be kind of, say, the future for VR in general we've talked about, but also the future of VR within the Star Wars IP? What would you expect or possibly hope for? That's a, it's a great question, and maybe we can... Given the audience is we have, we have I imagine a very forward thinking, imaginative audience. So let's push on this one a little bit. And I'm actually going to take this as an opportunity to kind of cross over from VR to AR because again, I really do that. I do believe that VR is really just a bridge on our way to AR. And if we think about how does the Star Wars intellectual property express itself in a future when our eyewear or contact lenses even, can just project digital objects into the real world in a way that, you know, eventually you won't necessarily be able to ascertain what things in a setting are virtual and which are real. We're, we're far away from that, right? But you can certainly imagine a, a future in our lifetimes when you can blend the digital and the physical in wonderful ways. And so one, for all IPs, but especially for Star Wars, you might imagine that you want to just sort of uh, have everyone in your environment be a Star Wars style alien or Jedi, <laughs> you know, so you could actually just like, you know, you could go into a like a con or a show or a, or a setting where you know you're actually walking in the real world, but but people are being re rendered as characters in a Star Wars environment, you know, or maybe you can even buy your own sort of quote costumes, you know, virtual sort of costumes so that you can be a Mon Calamari or whatever you wanted to be as you, you know, that's the way that you'd virtually express yourself to other people who are wearing the whatever next generation Apple glasses or whatever the heck this thing is, you know? And so you start to think about, you know, these, again, I think we're at this moment in time where digital technology, but also fiction is actually kind of breaking out of the screen. Now we can, we can take this to our most dystopian Black Mirror episode in terms of like all the nefarious ways advertisers could wield this or or worse. But for the purposes of this conversation, I, you know, sometimes when I'm just having a grumpy day, it would be kind of amazing if I got buzzed by a TIE fighter when walking through downtown Seattle, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I think, I mean, I think there's actually like dimensions of this that will be kind of magical. So I, again, I would say tread lightly. I've created VR experiences. I'm hyper cognizant of the societal concerns, but I just want to kind of capture the imagination of your viewership that like there is kind of a wonderful dimension 
of a future imaginative world where we are able to see um, a whole array of of our favorite intellectual properties expressed, you know, in, in the real world, which is kind of fun. One of the things that I'm imagining is like you walk up to your friend and you have your like lightsaber come out and like you have like a lightsaber battle, like almost fencing, but there's no actual swords or anything going on. It's just like you visually like pretending to have this fight. I think that'd be super fun. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. There's, I mean, it, of course, of course you can also imagine like just walking through New York city and seeing some people like having an imaginary blaster fight, you know, between like stormtroopers and Jedis. And they're just like, they're just like dudes in suits. They're like hiding behind walls, but you know, in their reality, they're like actually having, they're fighting for, you know, the resistance. I mean, it's whatever we can take this to our nerdiest dimension, but I just, you know, I mean, okay. The simplest way to think about it is maybe you just have a droid that like maybe your version of Alexa or whatever is actually, you know, an R2 unit that follows you around and you can ask it to make dinner reservations. And rather than just like doing it in a disembodied way with some, you know, Cortana style or Siri style assistant, maybe it's actually like an R2 unit in your reality. And the R2 unit is intelligent enough to know to, to steer around people in the real world. The visual system is intelligent enough to know to occlude the portions of the R2 unit that, that would be occluded if it was in the real world. I mean, that's actually done in modern AR systems now, uh, artificial occlusion. So there's all these, I mean, it's just it's such a deep imaginative area. And one other thing is like, imagine themed environments like Galaxy's Edge, or even, you know, themed experiences at, at Comic-Con, et cetera. Think about the intersection between actual built themed environments, and then the way you could augment those, you know, with special effects, <laughs> effectively using augmented reality technologies, you know, where you could see blaster bolts, you could see lightsaber blades, you could see things that are not, you know, super technically easy <laughs> right now. Which I think that Marvel does a great job of displaying this in the Iron Man movies of kind of the practical version of augmented reality with Tony kind of interacting with Jarvis and the different screens that aren't really screens. It's really cool how they show it in that. And even in the real world, I mean, people were going crazy over Pokemon Go just because it gave some sort of a taste of having the Pokemon in front of them in their actual street. So I, I definitely love that. And I think that augmented reality would be a in my opinion, kind of a cooler future than maybe the Ready Player One kind of dystopian view. I totally agree. And this is one of the reasons why I love the MCU so much. And I actually really, I credit Jean Favreau and others for, again, being artist geek hybrids. Like he, he loves, he's an amazing storyteller and he, he knows how to tell stories, but also he is grounded by the, the technologies that are mature at that moment in time to be able to, tell the story in a way that's as convincing as possible. And this is, you know, really, I mean, just bringing it home, this is what George Lucas did, right? By using motion tracked cameras and um, very high quality scaled miniatures. And, you know, I, again, I like, I, I love living at this intersection of the two hemispheres of the brain where you're able to be as creative and imaginative as you can possibly can, but constrained and empowered by just the absolute latest uh, technologies that can be brought to bear. Well, we'd loved having this conversation with you, John. There's all kinds of cool stuff within this field of technology, and including our favorite IP with Star Wars. But if our listeners want to learn more about you, your works, where can they kind of find more information? Sure. Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, you know, depending on, on the week and the month, I'm I'm doing some other wacky collaboration at this sort of weird intersection, but the one this five minutes that occurs to me might, might appeal to your audience, uh, given that you probably have a, 
bunch of folks that live at the intersection of Star Wars stuff and Disney stuff. I, I'm tinkering around with the new, um, I have a new YouTube series uh, called Imagidad um, that actually uh, I just released three um, three episodes this weekend that are exploring kind of imaginative. So, I, you know, I've been a product I've been in product design for 30 years, and like anybody else that I know in product design, I I love Lego. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Lego. I think it's incredible sort of imagination amplifier, and I've I've been um, I've always used it as a as a sketching tool, for lack of a better expression. But this series that I just released is kind of wacky. I I take um, Disney princess Lego sets and make them into rad spaceships. That's <laughs> so, so cool. I call it- Call it an anagram, right? So you take an anagram is like you take a word or a phrase, you jumble up the letters, and you make a different word or phrase. The thing, the reason why I did this is that I observe in in the you know my kids and my friends' kids that a lot of times when they get a kit, they're so compelled to build the beautiful thing that's on the outside of the box that they forget that they have this essentially like the world's most advanced three D printer. And you know, and the what I wanted to do was show you don't have to you know if you buy a Mulan kit or or a Rapunzel kit, you don't have to just make something that is in that fiction, you can actually go to crazy town and you can actually like, what if, what would a Mulan spaceship look like? What if you use just the pieces inside that kit to make a Mulan spaceship? And um, you know, what if instead of an R2 droid, it's like her horse is her co-pilot, you know, like, like all these different dimensions. So I did three of them. I did, uh, I did Mulan, Rapunzel and Cinderella, where I actually spent you know, a significant amount of time on the, on the project itself, but then actually wanted to capture it in video form really designed for, you know, five to 10 year old kids that uh, that are looking for a way to activate their emotion, especially during COVID. And so um, anyways, if there are parents listening that are either Star Wars, Lego or uh, Disney nerds, that if you just go to imagedad.com, I am, well, whatever, imagi with an I, dad.com, that'll take you to the YouTube channel. So that might be a interesting one for some of your audience to enjoy. That sounds so fun. And like usual, guys, you can get in touch with us at Podwars Podcast on Twitter or askpodwarspodcast at gmail.com. And on that note, everyone, have a great week.